Welcome to this week's Quill Podcast, recorded on Friday, 20 August, 2021. For those of you tuning in, thank you for joining today's podcast. The Quill Podcast is a product of the Lemieux Center for Public Policy at Palm Beach Atlantic University, located in West Palm Beach, Florida. The mission of the Lemieux Center for Public Policy is to provide a space for reasoned, thoughtful, and civil discourse on pressing public issues confronting Florida, United States, and the world. For those of you tuning in for the first time, my name is Robert Lloyd, Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences and Executive Director of the Lemieux Center. And I am honored to be your host for today's discussion. Our featured speaker today is Stephen Mansfield, a New York Times bestselling author and popular speaker who also serves as a fellow in public leadership at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He was a pastor for 22 years, after which he turned his hand to the pen and paper. One of his first books, The Faith of George W. Bush, was published in 2003. The book was also a source for Oliver Stone's biographical film about George W. Bush, entitled W. He decided one book was not enough for this world, and penned another 30-plus books, seriously depleting the world's supply of ink and paper. He released The Miracle of the Kurds just as Kurdish troops were taking a stand against ISIS, Islamic State, in the Middle East. The book has been named Book of the Year by Rudal, the leading Kurdish news service. In 2016, Stephen gave a TEDx talk entitled The Kurds, The World's Most Famous Unknown People. He continues to speak in the U.S. and abroad in support of the Kurdish cause. In today's discussion, and what should be by now be no surprise, Stephen and I will be discussing the Kurds. Stephen, welcome to the Lemieux Center for Public Policy. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. Uh, you're a busy guy. Um, I'm impressed with the number of books. Uh, first of all, do you have a favorite book of all of your oh, books? Oh, you know, it's like asking if I, if I love one of my children more than the other. Uh, I like them for different things. The Faith of the American Soldier I love because I was embedded with U.S. troops in Iraq. The Faith of George W. Bush I love because I got to spend a lot of time with the Bush family. So it's more my experience as a writer than it is necessarily the book itself. But uh, I suppose my favorite book of all is my book, The Search for God in Guinness, where I tell the story of John Wesley impacting the Guinness family uh, before they used their wealth to make a huge difference on poverty in Ireland. So that's probably my favorite book. Okay, well, that sounds like a favorite child. Yeah, I, I, in, in I come way. close to it. Okay. <laughs> if we had one, it might, yeah, yes, that might be that one. Exactly. Of course we don't. Uh, so the um, I'm concerned about the world supply of ink and paper. I don't know if you share that concern or if you're sort of oblivious or uh, you have mixed feelings. I don't think I'm going to you know really deplete uh, paper and ink in the world, but I'm really glad to have made a, hopefully a little contribution to the literature, print a few things. I think so. Uh, New York Times bestseller. The uh, we're going to talk about the Kurds now. Switching gears. Great. A lot of our listeners, some. Maybe even a few. We'll, we'll back it down from a lot to some to few. Uh, may not be familiar with the Kurds. Uh, it's been in the news. It's like, yeah, I've kind of heard of the Kurds. Not sure who they are. So let's just start off. Who are the Kurds? Well, it's a good, good, big, fat question to start with. The Kurds are the largest people group in the world without their own homeland. There are about 40 million of them. They're distributed throughout a number of nations, mainly Turkey, Iran, Iraq. That probably accounts for 32, 33 million of them. Um, 
And they are, for Bible readers, this will be a good connection, they are, they consider themselves to be the descendants of the ancient Medes. So the Medes that we read about in our Bibles, the Medo-Persian Empire we read about in history. Um, If you go to Kurdistan, if you go to northern Iraq, you're going to see the Medes restaurant. You're going, the television network for the Kurds in Europe is Mead TV. Their national anthem says, we are the Medes. So they identify themselves as the Medes. And they are uh, among the most persecuted people in the world of late and that's largely the doing of turkey uh turkey uh with the help of the european powers especially after uh world war one really have they've, they've all mistreated the kurds uh, even the u.s has contributed to that until maybe a no-fly zone in the in the early 90s and so um I think that uh, it's fair to say that they are a good, noble, friendly people, very Western. One of the things I love about them, I'm sure we'll talk about this, is very pro-democracy, very pro-West, very even, believe it or not, pro-Israel for a 95% Muslim people. That's pretty amazing. Um, but uh, they have really been mistreated by the Western powers. Um, so, okay, you're, so you're saying it's a very large people group. Yes. Uh, speaking a Kurdish language and probably various dialects of, of yes. the main language. Mainly Badnani and Sarani are their two main languages. People might know those names. And what what language might those that be related to? Are there who's what's the closest relationship? The 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 Kurds are from sort of the Persian side of the Middle Eastern ethnic tree, and so it probably if people think of Iranian as a language, uh, it, they're various dialects. But if they think of Iranian as a language, Kurdish, the two Kurdish main languages would sound something like Iranian, not Arabic, uh, but something something like Persian. Okay, so an Indo-European yeah exactly language. okay, and the why are they unknown? I mean, mention it's a large group, number of countries. Why? Don't we have as clear a picture of the Kurds? Well, I mean, I would say that we don't know who the Kurds are because, well, they've not done a great job of telling the world who they are. But also, I mean, think about it. Uh, I speak about the Kurds a great deal in the U.S. And most of us did not have extensive Middle Eastern history when we were in high school, even college. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you do a great job with that here at PBA. But I mean, most people don't know who the Kurds are. Uh, I can, I've even lectured at graduate schools. They weren't real clear on who they were. If it hadn't been for Saddam Hussein, if it hadn't been for uh, massacres like Halabja, event moments like that, I'm not sure most people would still know who the Kurds are. So uh, it's a combination of them not doing a great job presenting themselves to the world, which they own, and our education system just not considering them. When they are, they are pretty central to some major events in history. Certainly after World War II, I'm sorry, World War One, all of those agreements and what have you, and and obviously. Uh, all of the things that happened with the fall of Saddam and so on. The Kurds are right there in the middle of all of that. So uh, hopefully we're turning a corner on the information uh, scale. But uh, yeah, they're very, very unknown and, uh, and ill-served by that. But at the same time, you say they're famous. Well, they're famous in the sense that in recent years, let's say in the last 20 years, perhaps, maybe 30 uh, they've topped the headlines. Uh, Halabja was uh, an event in 1988, for example, in which Saddam dropped gas on a village, a town, and 5,000 were killed inst- instantly. Another 5,000 died in the in the following months and years. And um, done with the very weapons of mass destruction we later concluded he didn't have. Uh, so the Kurds come to the fore. Uh, Saddam forced the Kurds into the mountains, and many of them starved.
starved and died. And people who are uh, even the age, some of them of the grad students, maybe you're working with here at PBA, will remember those photographs of just fields strewn with Kurdish bodies. Um, I, I could go on and on and on. So, and, and then some folks are starting to get to know the Kurds because some of them are becoming famous. Chobani yogurt. Uh, he's now maybe one of the world's most famous Kurds, Mr. Chobani. Uh, I could go on and on and on. So all that to say, um, they're getting, they're becoming a little bit better known. Uh, the U.S. has taken up their cause. We obviously, with our allies, flew a protected a no-fly zone for many years. People knew of them that way. So they're better known now than they were, but still not nearly enough for us to make smart policies or be able to have a conversation on the street about them. Now, one of the interesting thing of, things about the Kurds, let's take a deep dive into history here. Let's go back to what I think is probably one of the most pivotal events in the last two or three centuries, which is World War I mm-hmm. and the impact that had leading on to World War II and, and the Cold War and so forth. Most of the time with World War I, we think of the armies massed along this uh, line of trenches uh, going from Switzerland all the way up to the Baltic Sea. But there were also things going on elsewhere uh, in Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, which is and all the successor states. So at, at the end of the war, nationalism is growing, Turkish nationalism in particular. Kurdish nationalism is growing as well. So how did this play out, this, these competing nationalisms play out following the end of World War One? Well, I think we now know, certainly for people who've seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, they have some sense that there were promises made to the people groups in the Middle East, certainly the Kurds, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, promised autonomy, uh, promised national determina- self-determination would have been the phrase. And so the Kurds expected that they would have their own homeland once the Ottoman Empire was dissolved. Uh, others thought they would as well, but it turned out, of course, as we now know, that there were agreements like Sykes-Picot, which uh, essentially had Europe carving up the Middle Middle East because oil was just beginning to be discovered. There were other riches. And so the Europeans uh, had prior agreements before these uh, promises were taken to the negotiating table in Cairo and elsewhere. Um, Europe had already made secret, secret deals. So as a result, uh, the Kurds, uh, at least the Iraqi, what we now know as the Iraqi Kurds, they were put in the northern part of the new state of Iraq. It's not Iraq's not one of the historic, you know, Egypt and 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 Iran type of states with a with a deep history. It was just fabricated after World War One, and the Kurds were put in the north of it to be a a cushion, a barrier uh, against Turkey and Ataturk's uh, Turkey. Well, so they're just being used. They're being moved on chessboards, and they weren't given any autonomy, and they it wasn't believed that they could run their own homeland. And so they ended up being carved up, first of all, put up under Hashemite kings, which was, uh, people may not know that term, but basically Arab kings, um, which would have been offensive to them, them coming from a different side of the Middle East and having some resentments about Arabs. And so all of that was meant to decentralize their authority, decentralize their presence, and remove the possibility of a homeland, which they feel keenly. And frankly, if it hadn't been for Saddam persecuting them so horribly, I'm not sure the West would have turned their attention to the plight of the Kurds. So, uh, But World War I is, it was a real time of betrayal as far as the Kurds. They still remember it. They're fairly forgiving people, um, but they, they remember those betrayals and, and uh, will speak to me about Sykes-Pico like it happened yesterday over a dinner. Uh, so they're, it, it's in their minds. Yeah, that's one of the most amazing things about uh, that time is self-determination. And that, that along with nationalism, began to enter into international relations affecting the map and re- really the dissolution of empires. But then as these states 
developed, such as Turkey and Iran, they became, in effect, little mini-empires as they controlled uh, different nationalities. So the question has always been, how far do you subdivide? So does every particular ethno-nationalistic group get its own state? So you're making an argument, I think, moving towards that, you haven't made it yet, that the Kurds should have a state. So why should the Kurds have a state and other groups not have a state? Well, obviously, you're making a good point, which is we can't necessarily carve the world up so that every ethnic group of whatever size, of any size, has its own homeland. On the other hand, 40 million people is many times larger than Israel, uh, Many, which I'm, I'm about as pro-Israel as I can be in my politics, uh, larger than other states. And I, and I, and I should say also that uh, they are suffering for lack of a homeland. It's, their pre, it's the fact that there are 650 million in Iran, 650 million in Iraq, certainly 20 million or so in Turkey, um, they're suffering persecution. You know, it wasn't that long ago that in Turkey, it was illegal to speak uh, in a Kurdish language. You would be arrested for it. Uh, people were arrested for writing poems in Kurdish language. You couldn't teach Kurdish history in the schools. And, and Turkey has 20 million Kurds. So at some point, we have to start to realize that these 40 million people, uh, I would say other than those who live in the U.S. perhaps, and maybe a few in Europe, uh, there's horrible bigotry against them, horrible prejudice, and horrible uh, removal of their of their rights by every major treaty that governs the world among men. So, um, I, I, I at the same time, I want to show you that I take your point. I sit with the Kurdish leaders, and we'll have dinner, and I'll say, guys, when I see your uh, imagined Kurdistan on a map. It's a state of mind. Uh, it, you know, if they had what they wanted, they'd have part of Syria, part of Jordan, part of Iran, part of Iraq, part of Turkey. Well, it's never going to happen like that. But something can happen in that region. And since a number of us believe that Iraq is a failed state, it could be that Iraq's going to subdivide and allow at least something of a homeland for the Kurds. Frankly, the KRG, the Kurdish regional government in the northern part of Iraq, is the closest thing to a homeland they have. So who knows what, what might happen? But I certainly take your point. Well, thank you. <laughs> he takes my point. And Since he's I, a dean, I have to say, <laughs> I take his point completely. It's uh, it, But it is an interesting question uh, in the sense that, okay, I'll push back a little bit more since sure. I'm the dean here. Please, go for it. All right, so you have Turkey. So say you, you posit, okay, you have a large group, some sort of states in the works. You can come up with the rationale, the justifications. Why this group, yes, other groups, maybe not. Now, the issue is you talked about Iraq uh, and you know, the northern zone, which is predominantly Kurdish. Mm -hmm. But let's shift gears to Turkey, mm -hmm. the same country that's saying, no, you can't speak Kurdish. No, you can't practice Kurdish culture and express yourself. So let's make them a Kurdish state. What happens to the Turkish state? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand your point. Now, Turkey is a huge country, and the Kurds are largely uh, gathered in the southeastern uh, corner. So it wouldn't be that big a deal, quite frankly, to peel off that part. In fact, it would probably solve a huge number of political problems. Um, one of the darker sides of Kurdish history is the history of the PKK, which is the terrorist part. It's angry Kurds in Turkey blowing things up uh, to push back against the state and its persecutions. So there's a case to be made that Turkey would be better off if they if they carved a portion of southeastern Turkey, maybe around 
the Arbiter and further on Eastern, um, to allow the Kurds to have that, merge it with uh, the Kurdish regional government, or Kur- Kurdish regional area in northern Iraq, and, and call it a Kurdish, Kurdish state. I mean, that's literally been debated in Congress. It's literally been discussed uh, at the UN without much traction, but it's a possibility. Uh, you either do that, or you have this growing people group, uh, persecuted, opposed, um, angry, surly, and betrayed. And what's that going to produce in the world? The Kurds are the West's friends, but uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I was on the ground when Donald Trump pulled 1,500 troops from the southern uh, border of Turkey area, that region, um, and the Kurds felt horribly betrayed. I, betrayed. I spent almost all night one night on Kurdish media trying to assure them that this wasn't a national betrayal. The Americans hadn't changed their mind. This was a president who had a certain view of policy. Um, so they're, you know, they're hanging in with us, but they, this is, this is 40 million people who think a lot alike and we don't want them angry. We don't want them violent. And we've, we've enjoyed having them at our side in most of our, our battles in that region. So it would be not only unethical to betray them, it could be uh, damaging to our own interests in the most literal sense. Okay, so Turkey is a NATO ally. Unfortunately, yeah, I mean it's one of those it's one of those friends that um, you know. There's a lot going on in the friendship. Let's just say it that way. That was so, well said, Mister <laughs> Dean. Well said. Diplomacy is my area. I can tell. All right, so you're so the say we say to Turkey, our NATO ally, dear Turks, uh, we're concerned about the Kurdish issue in your country. So what we think you need to do is carve off the southeastern part of your sovereign territory and create a little area for the Kurds. Never going to happen. I mean, it'll have to be a UN action. It might have to come after a military action. It's not likely to happen. I mean, Turkey right now is ruled by a man who talks about retaking Jerusalem in a jihad. So this is not a, a man who's given to rational thought and rational negotiation. But you know, even though any plan I might propose here in this podcast might sound silly, and I'm not saying you're treating it that way, I, I understand how difficult this issue is. The fact, nevertheless, is we've got a group, people group of 40 million people who don't have their own homeland, and it's not working to keep them where they are. No, and so I, 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 I grant you that. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think through the options, because one of the things is uh, it when when you get a divorce, the, the conflict is still there. It's just now they're two separate people sure. instead of being one. So if, if a Kurdish section of Turkey left, there'd still be the conflict, except now it'd be international instead of domestic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the underlying causes may not have sure. been addressed. We can't really get into that because it, you know, that's beyond the scope of the podcast. Unless our listeners would care you know, to be on for another two hours, three hours, <laughs> in which case we can easily make that happen. But we are a little time constrained for those of you driving in your car and just wanting, <laughs> hey, a nice 25-minute, 30-minute podcast. So we'll, we'll leave that aside. Let's move uh, forward. So you talked about Iraq, and Iraq has been a semi-autonomous zone since really 92, would you say? 93? Mm-hmm. Well, even yes. maybe during that time. So we're talking 30 years. So why has northern Iraq, uh, the Kurdish part of it, just simply not declared independence? Well, because they, they ideally right now, they want to remain part of an Iraqi federation. That's their desire. 
Um, it's, it's a failed federation, and they admit that. But right now, they think their best fortunes are to be part of a federation in Iraq. Part of it is that that's what the U.S. is insisting upon. The U.S. has opposed independence. You may recall uh, the famous vote referendum on and independence, and Pompeo opposed it. Everybody opposed it. I mean, it was, a, it was quite uh, controversial in D.C. Nobody, nobody gave any encouragement to that, even though... Uh, about 90% of the Kurds who voted said that they'd like to like to have independence. So it, I'm willing to concede that this is a bit of a pipe dream amongst the Kurds. Um, but for the most part, uh, the Kurds have stayed connected to the Iraqi Federation because that's the vehicle through which the U.S. government deals with them. And that's not worked out great, by the way. Uh, we pass aid through Baghdad. We pass weapons through Baghdad. Uh, it was finally the Obama administration that said, we're not going to go through Baghdad anymore. The weapons never arrive at the Kurds, and they're the ones who need it. So he, he actually armed the Kurds directly in violation of U.S. agreements because Baghdad was so corrupt. So the short answer is I think that the Kurds uh, remain part of an Iraqi federation because that's what the Western powers are insisting upon. Okay, so let's. Um, we're going to have some ideas here Go for it. all right so if it's not realistic at this point and goodness knows the events of the last few years have made me question sometimes oh this will never happen and then it happens goodness knows uh we never thought the soviet union would fall apart and then here it is and we're dealing with the aftermath of the the successor states so i'm never going to say never but let's take a look at it we have areas in syria certain extent in turkey and certainly in northern Iraq, where you have some degree of autonomy. Could you see kind of a cross-border linkages between these semi-autonomous areas? That's been suggested. Uh, some of the Kurds are for it, some aren't. Uh, most don't believe that the uh, sponsoring states, so to speak, the larger states, would really allow that. Uh, and really honor those agreements. The Kurds would amongst themselves, they do very well across borders. Um, in fact, there's been phenomenal relationships between the Iraqi Kurds and the Iranian Kurds. And, uh, you know, in fact, I was with some of them and was going back and forth across the border and didn't even know it. I, I, they hadn't even told me that I was actually in Iran, which wasn't safe for me. Uh, but my point is they do very well across the borders. But we, obviously, Iran, Iraq and Turkey are not going to get along well in, in uh, reinforcing that arrangement as much as it's been suggested. And I think it has some merit, but I, I just don't think it's workable internationally. Those are difficult ones. And, and for those listening, I would bring up Northern Ireland. Yes. So it's very interesting to ask people, to whom does Northern Ireland belong? And people will automatically say, well, Ireland, of course, and others will say UK at first, of course, and they'll be diametrically opposed. So when the UK left the EU, now you you deal with Northern Ireland, and the, are there borders between Northern Ireland and Ireland, between the UK and Northern Ireland? So it, some of these... Um, less clear-cut boundaries yes. can be a challenge. No, there's no question. There's no the, question. But at the same time, there's a reality on the ground of people with varying identities and allegiances. Mm -hmm. I will say that, that in working with the Kurds, one of the things that makes it difficult, as, as, as throughout the Middle East, is that you're not just dealing with Muslim and non. You're also dealing with different nationalities of Islam, and you then are dealing with tribalism. And so, obviously, the history of, of northern Iraq as it's often called, um, is determined by the Barzanis and the Talibanis, two leading families that are constantly in tension. They've even fought civil wars at really inopportune moments. So uh, you have a, a little bit more complex situation than you do maybe in northern Iraq. But I, but I certainly, again, take your point that that would be a, 
a, a good model, but it doesn't. It just doesn't seem we don't seem to be able to calm things down enough to have these kinds of discussions uh, with with the relevant parties. I think the other thing is the Marxist element um, of one branch of the Kurds is really challenging for the U.S. and for Turkey. Yes. And so, do you see any movement on that, or do you? Con- I do. I do. In fact, I I want to be upfront here. I consult with the Kurds and, and consult with the Kurdish regional government. And uh, one of the things we had we I had to do years ago was some of the older Kurds when they were on television or doing interviews, they would talk. They would speak of comrades. I want to greet all my comrades in the U.S. and all. The we say time out. Uh, that's old Soviet language to American ears. But what was sweet about it was, as, as not to go too far into Kurdish history, was that many times when they were persecuted, it was only the Russians, the Soviets, who opened up to them. And in, in fact, Mustafa Bazani, Bazani, one of the the sort of the George Washington of the Kurds. Um, he was called the Red Mullah because he he basically spent a great deal of time in in Russia in Soviet Union, and so all that to say that the, 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 there's definitely been a move away, but it's had to be urged by people in the West who love them and are saying we understand why you're doing this, you adopted this style, but you don't want to come in as communists, you don't want to come in as red, and they're not. By the way, one of the things that really moves me is that when they when the no fly zone was enforced, and the Kurds and the Kurdish regional government could start to take their own affairs in hand, uh, they move strongly towards free market. Their foreign investment policies were some of the most libertine in the world. Uh, they connected up electronically to the NASDAQ. Uh, I could go on and on and on. And uh, the, though, the, though the wars and the tensions have uh, slowed it quite a bit, when I would drive through Erbil, the capital city of, of the Kurdish regional government, you'd see cranes and you'd see Marriott's and you'd see Hilton's and you'd see all types of things because um, they welcome foreign investment so much. So they are definitely not uh, communist in their leanings, but they can still sound like it just as a matter of style. Yes. Uh, when you hear the word <laughs> comrade, you, you kind of go. I remember um, when I was living in Africa for a while, you know, on the radio, they'd say comrade this and comrade that. Yes. And it just, again, it was a little jarring to American ears. Sure. Years. And yet they only meant it as friend. That, that was the yeah. word, their word for friend. And we had to, I remember I did that in Africa too. I had to say, you don't want to use that word. It was in a church context. And they were going to speak to a big Ameri- a gathering of Americans. And I said, don't get up and talk, talk comrade language. <laughs> they, they won't get that. They expect that from Brezhnev. So um, to kind of move towards, towards the end of our podcast here, we, we've talked about why the Kurds haven't gotten their own state, some of the challenges. We're obviously, it's, it's a dynamic and tension-filled, but at the same time, people are going about their lives, making their living, going about what they do. So how do you see some of these tensions being resolved? Well, I, I think that uh, just like it has been for African-Americans, that prominent African-Americans who are rising socioeconomically, you know, break new ground, change mentalities, you have the same thing happening with Kurds. Um, I live uh, in two cities, Washington, D.C. and Nashville. Nashville's got the largest contingent of Kurds in America, um, and they're doing very well. They're thriving. They're buying businesses. They uh, lobbied the uh, state government to have Kurdish history and the Kurdish language taught in the public schools, and it was welcomed. It was approved by about 90%. Tennessee, can you imagine? People were excited because they have friends who are Kurdish, because they like the idea of their, their kids being able to learn Kurdish and things of that nature. So... I think the advancement's going to happen as it's happening around the world as Kurds continue to break 
what we would in another context call glass ceilings. And I think they're doing it. I think they're showing their genius. Um, but obviously, when you're in a war zone in the Middle East, it's a little harder to do. It's happening more in England. It's happening in the Nordic countries of Europe. It's happening in the United States. So you're saying that the Kurdish people have this long tradition, but they're also changing. Yes. Uh, adapting to the world that we find it in. That gives you hope as this process occurs. No question. That the Kurds will be able to find their way. Yeah, I, I believe that. I was part of groups that would meet Kurds at the airport in Nashville after Saddam had persecuted them. These people were fresh from the villages, still had the blood of their relatives on their bodies that had not been cleaned up as they uh, traveled. Um fell into our arms weeping and now a generation later those very families that came off i mean with nothing but a but a sack on their back um now own you know chick-fil-a's and you know they 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 have that that ottoman middle eastern market gift that ability of for shopkeep and enterprise and they are doing great things so yes i think i think in time good things are going to happen but again we the majority of the kurds are sitting there in some of the most contentious space in the middle east so they're slowed down by that situation wow this has been a fascinating discussion about the kurds and i hope our listeners are intrigued more about it i'm certainly am and i'll have to do some more research myself on it the like to have you back sometime and we can talk about some of the other books you have i figure with 30 plus books we have <laughs> we'll find something to talk yeah, about. yeah <laughs> there's not a problem there but uh, I, i'm kind of intrigued by some of your books on the faith of u.s presidents great and how that plays into the decision making and their understanding of the world let's do it i look forward to it thank you for having me oh you're quite welcome all right so thank you uh, to our listeners for being a part of today's discussion if you would like more information about the lemieux center feel free to visit our website by simply searching www.pba.edu and then Lemieux Center for Public Policy. Another way for further engagement in our policy center is through the Lemieux Center for Public Policy's Facebook page, which highlights current events in Lemieux Center news. Finally, the Lemieux Center for Public Policy would like to thank you for participating in today's Quill podcast and we invite you to tune in for another podcast in the future. Thank you, and see you next time.